when we arrived at basic training, one of the first things the drill sergeants asked us was if we knew how to do certain things. Did we know how to tie our shoes? Did we know how to dress ourselves? Did we know how to make our beds? Did we know how to eat? Did we know how to walk? Did we know how to talk? Uh, we were all pretty sure we knew how to do those things, and as we explained what those things were and we tried to do them, we found out quickly we, we didn't know how to do any of those things. Not only did we not know how to do those things properly, all of our best efforts to, to do them properly simply made things worse. Uh, we actually had to be taught how to do all of those things because there was a difference, we were told, between doing what your mama told you and doing it the army way. Uh, and the army way was not naturally discerned. You had to be taught from someone in the army to how to do it the army way. Now, as I was studying for the message today, I, I realized there's a very important parallel here to the gospel and the things of God. Because the world at large thinks it knows uh, about God. The world at large would say it, it understands the idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. The world would probably say they know something about the Holy Spirit, about eternity and heaven and hell and salvation. But the reality is, pretty much everything the world knows about these things is wrong. Not only is what they know wrong, nothing they can think of to get right, what they're wrong on will actually help. All they do is make themselves more wrong in the process of trying to get it all right. Why can't they understand and how can they understand? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Primarily verse 3 is where we'll be tonight. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I believe that's page 879 if you have a pew Bible. Scripture says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye also have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that which I preached to you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, was buried, and rose again on the third day, according to the Scripture, that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren, at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James and of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles and not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Therefore, whether it were me or they, so we preach and so ye believe. Title of the message tonight is the revelation of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We want to learn more about the gospel. We can teach it, apply it, and grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ ourselves. Help us tonight to take what we learn, apply it to our lives. Let it be on the forefront now, of our minds, Lord, about the, the truth and the importance of the gospel so we can do what we can to share it with those as, as life gives us an opportunity. Have your way in our hearts and our lives. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Use me for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, our key phrase for tonight is where Paul says, He delivered unto them, first of all, which he also received. Right, so he, the gospel he declared to them was not something he made up. It was something he had received. Now, if you pay attention all throughout Paul's writings, you'll notice he makes it clear he received the gospel by revelation. Right, earlier in the book, he has said, For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. Now, that talks about the Lord's Supper, but he's talking about the, the life and the death of Christ that he received of the Lord, which he delivered unto them. In the book of Galatians, he says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which I preached of me is not after man. For neither received I, neither I received it by man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's point in these two verses is twofold. First, he is saying he received it by revelation of Jesus Christ, so he's an apostle. 
But he's on par with Peter, James, and John. He's not secondary. He's not a second generation Christian. He is an apostle. But a part of what he's saying also is the gospel cannot be naturally discerned. Now we probably don't think about that. Because we know the gospel and we know it pretty well. But the gospel cannot be understood by natural means. Right, natural man, what the Bible would call natural man in 1 Corinthians 2, or unregenerate man in other places, cannot just naturally understand the gospel. Right? Something has to happen before they will be drawn to the gospel, before they will understand the gospel, before they will embrace the gospel. And so what we're going to do tonight, we've got quite a few passages you can see on your handout, and we're just going to look at them. And we're going to see the gospel is not received by natural means over and over again. And we're going to look at a, a key truth of that and then we're going to go home. So first turn to Matthew 11, verse 25 and 26. It's page 742 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 11 and, and verse 25, Jesus prays. So I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them to the babes. Now, it's an interesting prayer. He's thanking and praising God for what he has hidden from some and revealed to others. Now, these things are the things of salvation, the gospel of the kingdom. And what he's saying there is in kind of a response to what he has just said in the previous verses. So look up at verse 20 of Matthew 11. It says, Then he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Right. So in these cities, Jesus went there. He preached the gospel. He worked miracles. He did all of these things. And the majority of them rejected the gospel. And so he, he goes on in verses 21, 22, and 23, ta- giving, pronouncing these woes. Woe unto you. Uh, if, if what was done in you had been done in other places, they would have repented and would be there until now. It would be more, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be to you. Now the question that's interesting in this is, okay, Jesus takes the time, he goes to these cities, he does his miracles, and yet they reject him. Now, despite hearing and seeing, they, they don't embrace him at all. And Jesus says, this is because God has hidden these truths from them. Now, again, these truths are the significance of his miracles and the teachings of the gospel that he had declared. But while God had hidden these things from certain people, he had revealed them to those he called Babes. They were hidden from those who considered themselves to be wise and prudent. And he had revealed them to those who were babes. Now that's an important distinction. Because what Jesus isn't saying. Let's talk about what he's not saying. He's not saying he did one thing in front of one group of people. But he didn't do it in front of another. He's not saying he preached one message to one group of people. But didn't preach it to another group of people. That's not the distinction. He, he did the same things and said the same things to both groups of people, but one group received it and one group did not. One group, the truth was hidden from them, and from another group, the truth was revealed. Why? And I think the answer is in the description Jesus gives of the different groups. Right? The first group he calls wise and prudent. And what he's talking about are those who really feel they're too smart to accept Jesus and his gospel. Right? Those who felt they were they knew too much in order to just take Jesus at face value. Now, there could be lots of reasons for it in Capernaum and in the other towns. Maybe they had their own idea of what the Messiah would be like and what the Messiah would do. And Jesus didn't fit this expectation. He wasn't like what they wanted. Perhaps Jesus was too common to be the Messiah, right? I mean, Jesus was an uneducated, itinerant preacher. He was, 
he did gather around him uh, fishermen and tax collectors and not the scholars of the day. He had not been raised up in the rabbinical schools. He was a, a former carpenter. Perhaps they felt Jesus' teachings were behind the times. Now we often think that only our day deals with what we would call liberalism that says the teachings of Jesus or the scripture are behind the times, but it was, there was very much a, a move like that in this day. I mean, perhaps they thought the world was a different place than it was when Moses had given the law to Israel. I mean, Moses never envisioned a, a nation as powerful and wicked as the Romans. Moses never really understood. He never really envisioned the Romans, somebody like the Romans, conquering them so, so completely that not only did they rule over the people, but they began to influence them. That the Roman way of life, the Roman religious pluralism, the Roman uh, immorality was becoming normative throughout much of Israel. All of the world, but also in Israel. Surely, Jesus couldn't expect people to live by such outdated ideas about life, morality, and God as, as the Old Testament declared, which is what he was preaching. And all that sound kind of familiar in our day. In our day, the, the wise and prudent might say something like, well, I don't know what the Bible says, but here's what I believe. The wise and prudent might say, I, I don't care what the Bible says. Here's what I believe. The wise and prudent of our day might say, I just can't accept a God who would care about and then list something that culture says is fine. Now these sort of statements and others like them that we would hear flow from the closed minds of those who would consider themselves wise and prudent. They already know what they believe or what they don't believe. And almost nothing is going to change their minds. This level of arrogance cuts them off from receiving the gospel. The gospel is hidden from them and largely will remain that way. Now this is contrasted with those that Jesus calls babes. The gospel is revealed to those people. Why? Well, first let's understand what a babe is. Babe doesn't refer to intelligence or the lack thereof. Instead, it refers to those who would be humble enough to and open to Jesus' teachings. Right? So think about like Nicodemus from John chapter 3. Nicodemus was one of the religious leaders of the day. He was in the Sanhedrin. He was a respected teacher of the law. He was a Pharisee. Now, those are not the kind of credentials you get if you're a low-watt bulb. Nicodemus was every bit as educated, every bit as sharp on the Old Testament, every bit as knowledgeable of what was going on in the world as the, the wise and the prudent from these other towns who had rejected Jesus. So what made the difference from, G, from Nicodemus to those people? Nicodemus was smart enough to know he didn't know it all. In this, Nicodemus was a babe. Nicodemus was one who probably had his own ideas about the Messiah. He was a Pharisee. He would have had to. But he came to Jesus and he said, gosh, I mean, the stuff you're doing, I mean, just, just a regular guy couldn't do that. Nobody could do the things you do unless they come from God. But I don't understand. You don't fit. Right? He wasn't just like, sign me up and give me your Kool-Aid kind of guy. He was like, I, I just... I can see what's going on and it seems to be real, but it's not fitting. How, teach me. Help me to understand. And in this, he was a babe. Now, so what we learn in this is those who would consider themselves wise and prudent, they are too smart to believe the Bible. They're, they know enough. They've already got it all lined out. For them, the gospel will be hidden from them. But for those who are babes, who are teachable, who say, I have an idea of what's right and wrong, but I could be wrong about what's right and wrong. To them, the gospel will be revealed. And in verse 25, Jesus says, this is good in the Father's sight to do this. Now, so this wasn't an accident. This is God's plan and God's will. It pleased God to do this. We have to remember he's God. And as God, he gets to choose how to reveal himself. 
He gets to choose who to reveal himself. And he has chosen to reveal himself through the gospel to babes, to the humble. And he has chosen to hide these things from those who are wise and prudent in their own eyes. Now the question you may have is, why did God do this? We'll see the answer in just a minute, but not right now. Now turn to Matthew 16, verse 13. To see, again, we're we're looking at the idea that the gospel must be revealed. It is not naturally discerned. Now in our culture, the church is not very popular, right? I mean, we we see that in, in, in the culture at large. But in the culture, Jesus is pretty popular. There are very few people who really dislike Jesus. Now, they don't like the church, but they do like Jesus, or at least Jesus as they imagine him. They like Jesus as a, a great example of a moral teacher. Turn the other cheek, love your neighbor, love one another. That's good stuff to the culture. As a... As an example of kindness and love who touched the lepers and and talked to Samaritans. Yes, Jesus is loved. He is popular as this super sensitive, non-judgmental, just love one another and live your truth guru. But what he's not popular as is God in the flesh. He's not so popular as the Savior who died on the cross. He's not so popular as the one who died for the sins of the world and rose again. He's not popular as the Lord who commanded his followers to deny themselves, take up their crosses daily, and go make disciples of all nations. There's confusion in our culture about who Jesus is. But this idea of confusion is not new. It has always been this way. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 16. Then Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Right. So here's what he's asking them. What's the world say? What's the culture say? What are the people out there? Who do they say I am? And we see there is a deal of confusion. Well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I would love to go into great detail about what those... Ideas mean, but we don't have time for that. But just the idea that he was something. Right? I mean, they knew he was something. He was very different than religious leaders. He was meek and lowly of heart. He was mighty in scriptures. People were amazed at the authority in which he taught, performed miracles, cast out demons. Clearly, clearly Jesus was something extraordinary. But they couldn't quite fathom the concept of Jesus being the Messiah. So, so not quite the Messiah, but maybe Elijah, a prophet, maybe another prophet or something, but not the Messiah. Now, making up ideas about who Jesus is, as the culture was doing there, it has just kind of always gone on that way. Right? Because Jesus, he does stand significant. Um, there are atheists nowadays who say Jesus doesn't exist. There are few, but there are a growing number. But there are unbelieving scholars. I watched a video just last week of an unbelieving scholar. I mean, he's a not a Christian, not at all. But he said atheists who believe, who say there's no Jesus, they make themselves look like fools because the mountain of evidence testifies there was a Jesus. Now, he wasn't God. He didn't die for the sins of the world, but the guy existed, he said. And so the idea of Jesus, people have always had to try to figure out who is he because he stands significant. He stands above all other teachers and leaders that have ever existed. So who is he? Well, not long after Jesus ascended into heaven and before the last apostle died off the earth, the answer to who is Jesus by the world was he was a divine being who possessed or who posed as a human but wasn't fully human. He, he wasn't God, but he was more than a man, but he wasn't actually a man. Right? This was an early form of a heresy called Gnosticism. And 
the book of Colossians was written to kind of deal with it. And first and second John dealt with it. Uh, about people saying if people, if they say they do not accept Jesus come in the flesh, they're not of God. Right? So there was that. In the late 1800s, the early 1900s, the world's answer to who is Jesus was he was a social worker. Right? And they promoted a, a social gospel. And these people promoted, uh, the social gospel they promoted focused almost exclusively on Jesus' teaching on caring for the needy. And according to them, so long as you followed these teachings, caring for the needy, and, and you followed his example of caring for the needy, you were good to go, whatever else you believed or didn't believe. And so you could technically be an atheist, but as long as you cared for the needy, you were going to go to heaven because you were living like Jesus. That was the gospel. Help the poor, things along those lines. Now, that fell out of favor sometime after World War II, but it is coming back into favor in our day. But, but Jesus, He wasn't a, a divine being that wasn't man or God. He, he's not a social worker. Um, one of the, the main modern ideas of who Jesus is now is He is a, a guy of absolute inclusion. That the Jesus of our culture now would, would never tell you how to live your life. Just don't hurt others and be kind and be happy. The Jesus of today would never tell you something in your life which made you happy was a sin. How can something which brings you a feeling of happiness and peace, how could that be wrong? The Jesus of today loves and accepts everyone exactly as they are and would never dream telling someone they need to change even the smallest detail of their life. The Jesus of today says love is love. Live your truth. You be you. But this isn't Jesus either. Now there are a lot more ideas and have been through the years about the world would come up with about who Jesus is, but there is one common thread to all of these ideas. They're all wrong. They are everyone without question, without fail, wrong. Just as they were here. Jesus was not John the Baptist. He was not Elijah. He was not Jeremiah. And he was not one of the former prophets. So who is he? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, of course, crushes it with that answer. But for our purpose tonight, notice where that answer came from in verse 17. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Where did Peter's right answer about who Jesus was come from? From God. It specifically, we're told, it did not come from flesh and blood. Why? Because man's ideas about who Jesus is are wrong. If someone on their own comes up with an idea of who Jesus is, it will not be what the Bible says. It will be something other, something else, something less. The truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus did is not naturally discerned. It is revealed. One more passage. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Look at verse 18. For the preaching of the gospel or the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To us who are saved, it is the power of God. So the gospel message divides people into two groups. 
those who are perishing, and those who are saved. Now again, that division is pretty stark, isn't it? I mean, our culture does not like that kind of division. There should be multiple choice and areas of gray. But there's not. The gospel divides. And it divides all the world into one of two groups of people. Those who are saved and those who are perishing. And they are divided. The groups, what determines what group they're in, ultimately it's how they see the gospel. Those who hear the gospel and think it's foolishness, think it's foolishness because they're perishing. It doesn't matter what reason they give. doesn't matter why they think that. If they think the message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins according to Scripture, rising from the dead according to Scripture, and that salvation is found in Christ alone, if they think that is a foolish message, they are lost. They are separated from God. They are perishing no matter the reason. And those who see it as the power of God unto salvation for them, they are saved. Now, look at verse 22 and 23 to see a bit more about what the gospel or a person's view of the gospel reveals about them. Right? In verse 22 it says, For the Jews require a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. Now, death on the cross was... The most humiliating way a person could die in the world of the Scripture. It was shameful, it was humiliating, it was terrible. On top of this, the Old Testament says that anyone who dies on a tree was cursed by God. So when the Jews saw someone crucified, they not only saw the humiliating death of the cross, they saw the curse of God on the person who was hanging there. So for the Jews, to think their Messiah came and died in such a horrific, humiliating, and ultimately a cursed way was unthinkable. But more than unthinkable, it was insulting and offensive to them. I mean, it was a personal affront to them to say their Messiah died. That's why Paul hated Jesus so badly. That's why Paul hated the church so badly. The Messiah of the Jews was great and awesome and glorious and would not die in that way. And it was personally offended them at the core of their being. So they stumbled over it. Stumbled in offense. Well, many in our day stumble over the offense of the cross as well. About the truth of sin. That it's a real thing. And, and we've all committed it. Of condemnation. That we are condemned by our sin. Separated from God. We are guilty. Before a holy God. That, that guilt isn't a feeling. right? It's not I feel guilty. So I am guilty. Regardless of how I feel. My sin has made me guilty. There is judgment to come. And I am accountable. To almighty God. For my life. And my sin. And what I do. And I am unable to save myself. I am unable to fix my sin problem. Those truths are extremely offensive to many in our world today. They are offended by the truth. Their sins are as serious as everyone else's. I mean, surely we can see that easily in our culture, right? I mean, the news just constantly... Shows streams of people who do things and then are like, I don't understand why I'm in trouble. I just drove a car through a truck, went through a, through a restaurant window. Why am I in trouble? It wasn't my fault. Right? And, and yet, the idea in the gospel is your sins are just as bad as everyone else's. You're not better than anyone. You are separated. That you are ultimately accountable to God who will judge you by exactly the same standard. He judges everyone else. I mean... Our world is filled with people who think they should be the exception to the rule. They are guilty in the eyes of God and condemned because of their sin. They cannot save themselves from the wrath to come. Think about it. Think how offensive that is to so many in our culture. Nothing you do can fix your sin problem. 
Nothing you do can deliver you from the wrath to come. Nothing you do will make it better. And despite the fact you may feel you're a good person, apart from repentance and faith in Jesus, you will go to hell. It's offensive to to many. The idea, the truth, that the horror of the cross demonstrates the severity of their sin infuriates them. No, I, I do not deserve what Jesus went through on the cross. And their being offended at these truths tells us something about them. And what it tells us is they are perishing. The Greeks were different than the Jews. They stumbled differently. The Greeks found the gospel message to be absolute foolishness. Wisdom and intelligence were prioritized in Greek culture. The idea of a God who would take on human flesh, die for the sins of His people, then rise from the dead, it went against all the notions of what wise and intelligent people ought to believe. So they dismissed the gospel as nonsense, as foolishness. Many in our day view the gospel as foolishness as well. The very idea that God, if there is a God, would take on human flesh and die on a cross for the sins of man and rise on the third day is is utter nonsense. They wonder how any rational, intelligent human being could believe such fairy tales. They, They can't imagine Believing God, if there is a God, would care about your personal morality, would hold you accountable because you hold to or you don't hold to an old, outdated, puritanical moral code. In their mind, if there is a God, He is so far removed from mankind, He would not care how you lived so long as you didn't hurt anyone else and it would be foolish to believe anything else. The wisdom of man that they have there their own intellect as almost God in their mind demands they be able to see, to taste, to touch, to smell God before they would believe. And anything that does not conform to their man-centered wisdom such as the gospel is rejected as foolishness. And they're viewing the gospel and the truths of the gospel as foolishness reveals something about them. It reveals their perishing. Now, we could ask at this point, why? Why didn't God choose a method to bring salvation which would be less offensive to natural humanity and seem less foolish to enlightened humanity? Why not make it easier for the wise and the prudent to embrace. We're given the answer in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. The gospel humbles the wise, prudent, and proud humanity. Now what we see in verse 19 is a quote from Isaiah 29 and 14. In the context of the quote, Israel is facing an invasion, but they're not seeking God's help. Rather, in their own human mind, in their own human wisdom, they determine the best way to fight off this invasion is to make an alliance with Egypt. Because it makes more natural sense to make an alliance with a large nation, a powerful nation with a large army and have them come to help, it makes much more natural sense to do that than it does to call fasting and prayer and call the nation to repentance. No, no, it just makes more, more sense to get people involved. God's reply is He will bring their man-centered wisdom to naught. Scripture goes on in verse 20 and explains that Those this world promotes as great and wise are shown to be foolish. Where where are the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Those who are wise in this world are foolish. In comparison to God, they are proven to be foolish. 
by God's wisdom and His choosing of doing things and man's own wisdom, as long as they are dependent upon that, as long as they demand it conform to that, they will never find God. Right, verse 21, for after that the wisdom of God by the the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. The, the wisdom of man, by the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. What he's saying is, no one can know God ever through mere human intellect, human wisdom, or human ingenuity. This is God's design. That's the point. This is God's design. Instead, God chose People would know him as the script, as they were, as it was revealed to them through the preaching, through the proclamation of the gospel. Why did God choose to do it this way? Well, we're given the answer to that too. Look at verse twenty-seven. God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound things which are mighty, the base things of the world, the things which are despised. Hath God chosen, yea, the things which are not to. To bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. God intentionally chose to bring salvation in a way contrary to the way the wise, powerful, and noble would have done it. He intentionally chose to bring salvation in a way that man could not naturally discern and man would not naturally think of. When you look at man-made religions, they have a view of salvation, but... The gospel, what we would call the gospel, it's not one of them. Man just doesn't think in this way. So God chose it this way on purpose so no one could glory in His presence. What God is doing is humbling the wise, the prudent, the proud, and sinful humanity. Saying you don't get to choose, you don't get to decide, you, you don't make it, I have done it all. If God could be found through natural means, those who found Him would say, Huzzah, look at what I did. I found God. I'm awesome. Instead, God reveals Himself to us and reminded of our limitations. Think about it. I mean, think about it. How humbling it is. I mean, you realize, according to what we know in this and other places in Scripture, not one of us that's saved was sitting at home one day and just said, I think I need Jesus. The Bible says no one, Jesus said no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So our, our every desire for the Lord starts with Him. We, we didn't just sit around and go, there's something missing in my life. Jesus, that's what it is. If we had that thought, it's because the Spirit of God put that thought within us. Think about it. We, we, didn't, even, we didn't even think it up. Not only did we not think up the plan of salvation, we didn't even think up coming to Jesus to be saved. God reached out to us, initiated contact, and drew us to Himself. And that's pretty humbling. If salvation could be earned through doing good deeds, those who did them would say, Huzzah, look at what I've done. I'm awesome. Instead, God saves us through faith in Jesus, through the gospel, and we're reminded of our limitations. We're reminded we didn't do it. I didn't save myself. I didn't earn my salvation. I haven't earned my place in heaven. I mean, you and I, we are no more accepted and loved and redeemed today, no matter how long we've been saved, than we were in that very first moment when we cried out to Jesus to save us. We haven't earned our place in heaven before we were saved and we haven't done one thing since we were saved, no matter how faithful we've lived for Jesus, to earn our salvation. I mean, think about what Jesus says in Luke 17. He says the, the servant goes out and plows the field. And when he comes in, does the master then say, here, you sit down and I'll serve you? No, he says, that's not what he does. Instead, the master sits down and says, good, you've served me. Now, here's all you've done. You've done your duty. Good job for that. As we live for Jesus, as we do His will, the best we do is our due diligence. 
In fact, Jesus calls it, we are an unprofitable servant. Because we're not ever perfect. We never do it all exactly right. Isn't that a humbling thought? I mean, if someone comes Sunday, gives their life to Christ and is saved, I mean, they're with us. I think about the story of the, the workers in the field. One guy gets comes out in, in the early morning and he picks him and he works all day. Then another guy at noon and another guy at four and another guy just before quitting time. And when it comes time to pay them, does the guy that worked in the morning get more? No, they all get the same. Why? Because that's how God works. Now, the guys that worked all day were upset, weren't they? I've earned more. No, that you, you agreed to this wage and I'm giving you this wage. That's a humbling thought. It reminds us we don't deserve it. It's just a gift that's given through Christ. God does not intend to share His glory with anyone. So He chose to save humanity through a crucified Savior. A message wise, prudent, and proud humanity would never come up with. A message wise, prudent, and proud humanity would never naturally be drawn to. A message which must be revealed. So all of this we've talked about was so we would understand this. The gospel must be revealed before it can be received. This is why we must explicitly proclaim the gospel. The gospel must be revealed before it can be received. Now the Holy Spirit works through us to reveal the gospel as we share it so people can receive it. Now let's quickly turn to 2 Corinthians 4. And it's a familiar passage so we won't take won't have to look at it very long. And look at verse we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 ultimately, but start in verse 3. Uh, that's page 883 if you have a pew Bible. Second Corinthians 4 and 3. But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. Some translations say perish. And notice again, there's that, that contrast. That, that, divide, that division. Those who see no need for the gospel are lost. They're perishing. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Right, so there is, they're lost. They're not going to come to it. Naturally, they aren't going to overcome their own spiritual blindness and see their need for Jesus. Something has to happen. What has to happen? Verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. So what has to happen before the those who are blind to the gospel can see the gospel. Somebody has to explicitly proclaim the gospel to them. But in the gospel, not, not ourselves, not our preferences, but the gospel. And notice what happens as we proclaim the gospel. For God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we explicitly Share the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. The Holy Spirit works to open their eyes so they see their need for Jesus. And they're given the opportunity to repent, to believe, and be saved. As we reveal, the Holy Spirit reveals. We could look at Acts 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't have time for it. But it's the same picture. Philip sees the guy on the chariot. The Holy Spirit says, go join the chariot. He goes up there. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading a copy of the book of Isaiah. Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? Philip then from that very passage starts there and explains to them, Jesus, the guy believes and is baptized. Naturally, he was not going to come to that knowledge. It took someone to reveal to him the truth. And as Philip revealed, the spirit worked to reveal 
Now, why is this God's plan? Why is it God's plan for people like us to proclaim the gospel to people who are spiritually blind, who are wise and prudent, proud and sinful? Verse 7 gives us the answer. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, the treasure is the gospel. You and I, we are the earthen vessel. An earthen vessel, it, it pictures an ordinary, regular, common can. I mean, maybe not, not, not quite a trash can, but just not anything special. But it's not the fine china you bring out for important guests. It's just the regular, ordinary, everyday stuff. That's us. We're regular, we're ordinary, we're everyday stuff. And in this regular, ordinary, everyday stuff, God has given us a treasure of the gospel. But why? Why not only use the Billy Grahams of the world and not the Stacy Rosses of the world? Why not just focus on those who are also treasures in their own right? The famous, the, the Kanye West, the, the, the people who are on TV and already have a huge audience and they can just say, I want to talk on the Tonight Show and I want to share the gospel and everybody would let them. Why not just use them instead of the everyday people? The answer is given. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not us. Who gets the glory if everyday, ordinary people, something extraordinary happens to their sharing the gospel with somebody? Not, not we, right? not, not us. If we know that we're everyday and ordinary and we share the gospel and somebody gets saved, we don't walk away going, I'm awesome, I'm the greatest thing ever. We walk away going, oh, God is awesome. Let me tell you what God did. And that's the point. God will not share His glory with anyone. God intends to be glorified. He's glorified through the message, which is contrary to the wise. He is glorified through the messenger that is average and ordinary. And the messenger must reveal the gospel before it can be received. Now, one last quick thing. Look at verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. What's the ministry? It's the ministry of the gospel. And the ministry of the gospel is a mercy to us. Not This is what's cool. It's not a mercy to them. I mean, it is. But that's not what he's saying there. We have received this ministry as we have received mercy. One of the, the ways God gives us grace and mercy, one of the evidences of God's grace and mercy in our lives, is we are entrusted with the treasure of the gospel. One of the ways in which God has given us, has gifted us mercy and grace, is by allowing us to join Him in the work of seeking and saving those who are lost. There are a lot of Missions and visions and plans in our world today. But only one is eternally significant. And it's not just the Billy Grahams. And the Rick Warrens and the David Jeremiah's and the Max Licatos who get to be a part of it. It's us. Ordinary people in Guymon, Oklahoma. We are mercifully gifted by God to be a part of that ministry and to be a part of what God wants to do in Guyman, in Goodwill, in Texoma, in Hooker, in the Panhandle. How wonderful is our God that He takes us as ordinary, everyday people and enables us and allows us to be a part of something that transcends time. See about our church. Well, this isn't on my notes, and I'm out of time. But our church was planted by Wade Jernigan. Wade Jernigan's been—he's been dead a long time now. Most of the original people, the the ones who called for Wade, they're gone now. 
And yet 55, 60 years later, the gospel still goes out from Ghana. If you have a new way, ordinary, everyday, common guy, he was not your Billy Graham. And yet, as it says in Hebrews, being dead yet speaks through our church. What he did here, what Grandma Rice and the others did here, it transcends their lives. And as long as this church exists, it is a part of what they started. We get to be a part of carrying that on. Nothing else does that. I was in the army for 11 years. I've been out for a long time, but two months after I was out, nobody cared. Two months after I was out, nothing I did at Fort Campbell mattered to anyone at Fort Campbell anymore. I was a computer repairman. Nobody still uses any of the computers I repaired. Nobody still uses the internet service I worked for. This... This is what's significant. This is what is eternal. This is what will matter long after our lives are gone. And it is a mercy and a gift of God that we get to be a part of it. A lot of times we say things like, I hope they, whoever they are, will be saved. Our key takeaway from tonight's message is they won't. Unless someone explicitly reveals the gospel to them. Wise, prudent, proud, and sinful people will never naturally drift to the gospel. Wise, prudent, proud, and sinful humanity will consider themselves wise and prudent and proud. And in no need of the gospel. Wise, prudent, proud, and sinful humanity will take up some worldly idea about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and they will stay wise and proud and prudent and sinful and lost. Wise, prudent, proud, and sinful humanity will be offended by the gospel and leave the church because those people down there are just too judgmental. Wise, prudent, proud, and sinful humanity will find, the God, will find the gospel foolish and they will move away from it saying it's just, it's just too intellectually stupid to believe. Wise, prudent, proud, and sinful humanity will on their own reject the gospel and never come to Christ for salvation. The gospel must be revealed Before it can be received. And God in his infinite wisdom. And his infinite grace has chosen to reveal the gospel. To ordinary. Everyday people like us. As we go out. And we share it with others. Let's pray.